Before we start, just a quick announcement. To celebrate National Science Week, in situ science, we'll be doing another live podcast. On the 9th of August at the Camelot Lounge in Marrickville, we will have a panel of Sydney's brightest scientists and science communicators talking about the realities of a life in science. The event is called Life vs. Science. There will be food, drink, and all sorts of nonsense. Find out more at insituscience.com or on the Sydney Science Festival website. It's going to be great. I'll see you there. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each week we meet a different scientist and get to know a little bit more about their lives and careers. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm chatting with environmental scientist, author, and Camilleroy elder, Harry White. Harry, welcome to the podcast. Yes, good morning. Now, I'm up to 50-something podcasts, and you're my first Aboriginal scientist. Well, I feel very privileged. <laughs> Well, I mean, it says well it says a lot about Australia, but yeah. well, if not that, do Australian science. Mm. How did you get into environmental science to begin with? I guess being an Aboriginal person, we were already there to start with. It <laughs> 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 probably just needed a bit of prompting, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I guess that there's the need amongst Aboriginal communities to participate in land management. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a need for Aboriginal people not only to participate but also to be able to uh, develop traditional ecological knowledge which has been handed down for many, many generations as you can appreciate. Mm-hmm. So they can mix the traditional ecological knowledge with the current scientific trends that are happening in today's society, yep. particularly in land management in broadacre farming mm-hmm. or just normal just land management of how to look after the country, how to revegetate it, how to look after the trees, the animals, the flora, mm. the fauna and all that. So putting those things together to me is an exciting opportunity yeah. um, and, and one that I grab and promote as much as I possibly can for the benefit of everybody, not just the Aboriginal community, but for the non-Indigenous community as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we often hear about using Indigenous knowledge and landscape management, and I feel like mm. it always has uh, a, a wildlife bent to it. It's about managing natural landscapes, but you're, you're talking about much more than that. It's about bringing them into farming and forestry and those that's, sorts of land uses That's as well. right, yeah. yeah. Controlling of, of vegetation is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have introduced weeds of national significance on our properties, mm-hmm. as everyone else does. That's a major, major headache for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also feral animals and, and pests and vertebrate animals that are out there that are creating havoc in the communities as well. So... Yeah. Um, particularly with the areas of vegetation, we use a process of fire management, um, cool mosaic burning on, on property to promote vegetation, which also uh, burns the weeds that are out in the vegetation as well, so then they can be sprayed in a more controlled environment. Mm-hmm. And so you're working here at the Northern Tablelands Local Area Land Services? Yeah, Local Land Services, yeah. Our area, it covers basically north of Tamworth, um, right up to the Queensland border. We go as far west as Delungra. Mm-hmm. And on the eastern side, we go to uh, Bellbrook, El- mm-hmm. uh, Ebor, um, Drake, mm-hmm. Tabulum. So we've got a fair patch of area there. Um, our area, to, for us to manage it, particularly from an Aboriginal perspective, uh, we formed an Aboriginal reference advisory group to allow me the opportunity of getting out to the various communities. We have 10 local Aboriginal land councils operate within our region, 
and it's important that each one of those land councils has the opportunity of being engaged in land management in one form or the other. Not all land councils have land as far okay. as broad acre. Some of them are just purely residential. They look after housing, etc., etc. Some have small blocks of land within their communities, yep. uh, one or two hectares. Uh, some have quite substantial land management areas. What we do with our reference group is that we actually combine those who do not have the big areas with those people who do. Mm. So therefore everyone gets the opportunity of getting training such as in uh, chemical spraying and fencing, conservation land management, Aboriginal site works. Um, So everyone has an equal opportunity of going and not so much just learning in, in workshops and training venues but also to be able to practice those skills on land so they can actually see what they're doing and get the results of what the, what it's all about. Yeah, so local land services, um, I'm honestly a bit naive about. It. It's a branch of the state government, but what, what's its yeah, umbrella? We, yeah, we're a government agency. Uh, there's 11 local land services in the whole of New South Wales. Okay. Uh, people may know us... Uh, in the former life as Catchment Management Authority, CMA. Oh, okay. yeah, that so we were, we were Border Rivers Guider CMA before we became Northern Tablelands Local Land Services. Yeah. Um, and like we had a bit more land uh, when we were CMA, uh, but now we're a bit more confined, uh, what we do. But uh, we have great successful teams out there. We do emergency management. Uh, biosecurity, sustainable land management, natural resource management. Uh, there's a whole range of activities that we get involved with and that's open up to the Aboriginal community as well to be involved in each one of those activities. Mm. So essentially you're managing natural resources uh, on a broad scale, not necessarily you know, national oh, yeah. parks or yeah. state forests, that sort of stuff. It's that's be exactly everything. right. Yeah. But we also... Uh, in respect of the Aboriginal communities. We're very, very strong in protection of Aboriginal cultural heritage sites mm-hmm. on properties. Yeah. Uh, and there's quite a myriad of Aboriginal cultural heritage values, as we call them, yeah. on properties from anything from scarred trees to carved trees to axe grinding grooves uh, to middens to burial sites and, and yeah. things like that. So respectfully, we work with each community to be able to preserve and to uh, re- first of all record and then uh, preserve those sites so they're going to be there for the next generation mm-hmm. um, so any work that we do on properties uh, we do what we call an AIMS A-H-I-M-S mm-hmm. which stands for the Aboriginal Heritage Information Management System it's a database maintained by the state government on all Aboriginal heritage values on properties mm-hmm. so we work with very closely with the Office of Environment and Heritage who maintain that database to make sure that if we go out to do a project on any of our properties that we're working on, that we're not going to be in a situation where we could be seen to be harming any Aboriginal cultural heritage values on property. Very, very important. Once it's lost, it's lost. Yeah. Our, our job through the ARAG and through myself in my individual role with, with LLS is to preserve and make certain that we preserve that cultural heritage. It's ultra-important. Yeah, I imagine lots of the work is finding out what is of cultural significance in the first place? Because like mm. you said, lots of this That's knowledge right. is already lost. Mm. Last year we completed training with 16 of our people 
the Aboriginal community I'm talking about across the 10 land councils mm-hmm. um, to become effectively site managers, mm-hmm. all right, Aboriginal site officers, so they can actually train to go out onto a country, mm-hmm. onto the, to the land, and then uh, go a walkthrough, as we call it, to ascertain if there's any values on the, on the country, yeah. uh, and then to report back and then work with the elders in each community and the local Aboriginal land council and us yeah. as a funding body to preserve those cultural heritage values. So yeah. it's a pretty mechanised manner of doing it. It works. Um, but by training those 16 people has also created another enterprise. Yeah. So they can actually go out there and do work for other organisations on a fee-for-service. Mm-hmm. Um, so that starts getting people back on country, starts to empower them a little bit more. Uh, and then they work very closely with our operations, which is ultra, ultra important. Yeah. And how important is it that it's you know, someone like yourself, an Aboriginal person, going out and talking to other Aboriginal people about these issues? Because you know, we're in this situation where if we had someone like myself going out and trying to make these connections, yeah, it wouldn't go down as well, right? <laughs> uh, well, well, yes and no, James. Mm. Um, first of all, I'll deal with the Aboriginal component. Um, a lot of our people know what's out there. Mm-hmm. All right, and a lot of people who know what's out there don't really necessarily understand the legislation that's, that's there for the protected under the due diligence code of practice. Mm-hmm. So we explain how that works and how that's the benefit to making sure that those objects are not destroyed on, on, on land. Um, the other aspect of that is, is to train our people up in those areas. Mm. They, they know what's out there. They need to know what the legislation is, yeah. how it works, and then how they can apply it themselves. Mm. From a land council perspective, if the land council are not aware of how things are working or from a cultural heritage protection point of view, how can they go out on the country and look after land themselves? Yeah. Or advise a Farmer Brown, yeah. so to speak. And I use Farmer Brown colloquially, of course. <laughs> right. From a non-Indigenous perspective, um, we've found that we've had, I think in the 11 years I've been doing this job, mm-hmm. I've only ever found one person who has been a bit negative towards us going on their land. Okay to protect something yeah and that comes down to the individual i think a lot of it comes down through communication yeah um and representation effectively um i I look at things as being on a win-win situation uh we're there to protect something that's going to be there for not only our children yeah and their children after that but also farmer brown's children Mm. and his children yeah. So there's lots of, lots of benefits there. It's part of Australia's history. Yeah, definitely. You know, so uh, from a non-Indigenous perspective, having somebody such as yourself to go out there to help, we have non-in, yeah, non-Indigenous people, yeah. right, have also been working with us, such as archaeologists, mm-hmm. all right, to come out on country to hone in on certain aspects of the land that we may need to get some more expertise behind. Yeah. Uh, and they accept us you know, 100%, so that's fine. Yeah. In actual fact, they actually thrive when we're on country with them because we can find things that we just need their clarification. We know yeah. where things are, you know, yeah. so it works very well. So, um, yeah, we have uh, good working relationships with a lot of archaeologists around the area, mm-hmm. uh, and we have to because sometimes we have to do formal reports, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for land management perspectives to make certain that we've covered off on the Act. Yeah. Um, and it's important that the land councils understand that process as well uh, because it's just so ultra, ultra important. Had we had this legislation perhaps 250 years ago or 230 years ago, we would have a lot more stuff to show. 
But as each time as the tree gets knocked down, it could have had some Aboriginal heritage values done to it. Once that tree's gone, unfortunately, it's gone. Yeah, it's mm, scary. Remember having that realization a couple of years ago that you know, in a, a Western culture, we put all this cultural significance on things like uh, buildings or bridges or things that are you know, man-made. Mm. Where when we're talking about Aboriginal culture, it, it can be a stream bed. A, a rock, a tree, and things that we mm. assume are part of the landscape are not part of history, but mm. that's just a totally different perspective. Yeah, we, we look at habitat structures like rock overhangs and mm. caves and things like that, and of course that leads to a couple of things then. If you start looking at a rock overhang and you look at people living in that sort of environment, they reside in there, so there could be a hearth where they've actually had fires, you know, mm. to, to cook their meal or whatever. Um, there could be rock art that's inside the cave. Mm. Right? There's also, along the drip line, there could be artefact scatters, which are the stone tools that have been made. Mm. So just by having a rock overhang on your property could actually involve three ACH values that probably no one even thought about before. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so was this knowledge about uh, your culture and your landscape, was this something you grew up with? Or was this something Pretty you much so, yeah. yeah. It, it was embedded in me at a very young age. Um, and having the status of being an elder in my own community, it is ultimately important that I hone those skills and then mm. pass them down to the next generation. Yeah. Ab- absolutely critical, as it was taught to me. So, um, yeah, that's critical, absolutely critical. Mm. At what point are you recognised as an elder? When do you...? That's an interesting question. Um, it's not so much being of age. Mm-hmm. Um, although that probably got something to do with it because with age comes wisdom, or hopefully mm. at any rate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, with, with age comes wisdom. Mainly being an elder is the wisdom part of knowing yeah. the, the law, the L-O-R-E law, yeah. the traditional law of how Aboriginal people survived in this harsh environment. Yeah. And I guess once you've been taught that law and you pass that law down, that's where it becomes... Better, yeah. If you hang on to the the knowledge and don't pass it down, you've already sort of got a block in the chain. Yeah. You know, and that's that's and a lot of people sadly are like that. Mm. All right, um, and a lot of people are probably getting misinformed about the law. It has to be done in its pure form. If you look that's at in. the Aboriginal population of Australia, which has been going for 50, 60, 70, 80 thousand years. Mm-hmm. And having that law in place, they would have had to have done something awfully right. Mm. They don't survive. We're the oldest living culture in the history of the world. So I'm charged with a fairly heavy responsibility in my own little area in doing my own little thing to make certain that as an elder, that law is upheld. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's it like having your uh, your identity, your history tied to your, your nine-to-five is, is that a motivating factor, or has that put a lot of pressure on you? Uh, I'm sorry, could you, could you repeat the question? <laughs> what's, it, what's it like having your history and your identity and your culture uh, part of you know, your day-to-day job? You know, it's yeah. not like you can just go to do work between 9 and 5 and then go home and switch off. Mm. To answer that, I, I guess from a personal perspective, I feel extremely privileged mm. uh, to be able to be in the situation where I am, where I can have some sort of influence over people uh, in respect of helping, administering, teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, All that is very, very important to me. Um, 
I've written some books, as you're probably aware, mm-hmm. and that's one way of passing the knowledge down for future generations because in today's society, you have to start to think about today's society and how kids are interacting, yeah. um, the respect level, um, whether the parents know anything and that can be handed down. Mm-hmm. But if you write things on in a book form or something like that, my attitude towards that is that one day those kids will pick up the book. Yeah. And there it's there, it's there, it's been recorded. I've done my job, so to speak. Mm. Not that I'm trying to relinquish any other means of doing it. <laughs> the old days of, of the elders sitting around and the kids all sitting around the elder listening to what was being said are long gone. Mm. Particularly in metropolitan, uh, semi-urban type environment. Yeah. Different if you're up in Arnhem Land and places like that where the culture is more pure, mm-hmm. if that's the right way of looking at it. But we've been urbanised. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be very, very careful that we don't become too urbanised. Yeah. All right. Otherwise, um, the culture will, will suffer. And right? I don't think that's true just for Aboriginal people. I think it's true for everybody. Well, it's possibly <laughs> dead right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I look at it from my perspective. Um, having my role um, with my status in my community is, as I said, it's a great privilege to have the role and mm. to have the, have the Aboriginality attached to the role. But it's a permanent position. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's good because there's continuity there. Mm-hmm. Um, not just for me from a financial perspective, but from my people who I represent. Yeah. Uh, they know that they've got a familiar face that's going to be there for them for some time. And um, they know that the advice that I give them will be right, it'll be accurate. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so that's pretty what I'll say. Tell us a bit about these books you've written. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've co-written three books. Yep. Uh, the first book was called Bush Tucker Boomerangs and Bandages, mm-hmm. uh, and I co-wrote that with uh, environmental scientist once again, Michelle McKemmy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we co-wrote that back in two thousand and eleven, uh, and that is the uh, history of trees, shrubs, grasses herbs and vines, mm-hmm. um, used by Aboriginal people in traditional sense. Okay. Uh, so we've done the scientific side of it in respect of, okay, we've got a photo of a tree, we've got the scientific name, the common name, mm-hmm. a description and all that, but we went one better, we wrote it in language. Wow, okay. Right, we wrote it in the Camilleray language, mm-hmm. um, so we're introducing the language into our books uh, we still have the English there, of course. I don't want to be able to understand it. But, um, <laughs> but the other important section of there is a section on the bottom of the page of each particular plant species is the traditional knowledge of how that tree, plant, shrub, grass was used yeah. by our traditional people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was um, a huge success, that book. It's in its third printing. We're up to about oh, 30,000 yeah. copies now. Yep. It's just about in every land council in New South Wales, in the National Library, uh, the State Library. It's, um, we're very, very pleased with the result of that. The uh, exposure of that book was phenomenal. We did not expect the reaction that we got to it. Yeah. It's in huge demand. I've even got messages this morning coming here <laughs> for, for more copies from another group yeah. out west. So, and it's so pleasing that um, not only from a indigenous perspective, but also the scientific community have embraced the book mm-hmm. and it's great field guide, so to speak. So when people are out on country, they can clearly identify trees and not only identify them from a scientific perspective, but also say, oh, that tree was actually used by Aboriginal people to do such and such. Mm. And that to me is important because that's preserving the knowledge. Yeah, it's interesting you say it's a bit like a field guide because that was my first thought yeah. when I opened the book. Like, yeah, this has so, got more information in it than most mm, field guides. So, so that book went international. 
Okay. Yeah, went to Scotland, England, and Ireland. Right, <laughs> so we got the big three there. Yeah. Uh, so that was great, and that was um, through letters that people had written from right. education institutions over that area of the world. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty pleasing. Um, so that book is still in huge demand. Yeah. Um, probably every two years we do a reprint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to have some more money to be able to continue that line of thinking. It's restricted to 96 species, which are the more common species that are around the New England area. Mm-hmm. But it'd be nice to be able to increase that to perhaps double that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, money is a big issue in today's society, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> the The second book is called Sticks and Stones. Yeah. And it's a Aboriginal archaeological book, okay. all right, where we talk about the due diligence code of practice for the protection of Aboriginal objects in New South Wales, or the code as we know it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the legislation that everybody on land has to abide by. Right? So we go through the processes of what, if you found something, what do you do and how, do you, how that's all protected and how we work with the person who's found something on their property and how we both jointly work together to look after it. Mm-hmm. Right? We then go into describing great details what is an artefact. Mm. Aboriginal artwork, the different types of artwork that are on rock overhangs. Mm. All right, how do you protect them? All right, we then go into tools and weapons, which are the tools and weapons as you can imagine: boomerang spears, shields, so on and so forth, that are made by Aboriginal people to survive in this mm. area. And great pictorial guides. So that that was book number two. Uh, that went international as well. And that's been a great book for people learning all about Aboriginal archaeology, if that's the right words, mm-hmm. um, and helping people to feel guidebook. It slips in the glove box of the, tr- of the truck on the, on the property <laughs> so Farmer Brown can clearly identify what is a scar tree. Okay. Right, in respect of whether it was a lightning strike or a machine's hit the tree or whether it actually be done by Aboriginal people. Yeah. They can all look the same. Yeah. All right, so it's a handy guide. Mm-hmm. The third book um, is Speaking Our Way, uh, and that, I guess, is possibly the pinnacle of my knowledge. That's <laughs> over 40 years of collating Aboriginal languages in the New England region. Yeah. Yeah. First of its kind in Australia, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got every known language and every known word recorded uh, within the New England region, the area that I described earlier on. Okay. Uh, quite unique. It's a great reference book, so if people want to know the word in Bunjalung, Wailabul dialect for I, the word is there. If they want to know it in Gamilaray, which is the other yeah. on the western side, the word is there. So people keep the language alive. Yeah. And it's a great resource for people to be able to use Aboriginal words to name things and to keep the, the language flowing. Hmm. So... In putting that book together, I had uh, a lady by the name of Bernadette Duncan. Uh, she's a linguist like myself in Gamilaroi, and we put that together. We had a lot of fun. We went through <laughs> all the areas there. As with all three books, we went out to the whole region, spoke to all the elders. We had community meetings, uh, got elders' advice, put, listened to what they had to say, and put all those into the book. Yeah. The book could be seen to be a dictionary, but we jazzed it up. We put lots of Aboriginal artwork through it, which were done by people locally, <laughs> all right, just to add a bit more flavour to it um, and to just not having a boring old page full of writing. We wanted artwork put it through there to scatter right throughout. So yeah. that went international as well. That's in America, wow. in Yale University. <laughs> it's important to remember 
too to point out to people that these are these are living languages. Yeah. These aren't languages that were once used. They're still used yeah, today. There are uh, certain linguists out there, not, not as many as we'd like, but there is a language revival happening as we speak mm-hmm. uh, here in Armada, where we're doing this interview today, uh, but also further west in my country at Walgut and um, Kolaranabrai, uh, Lightning Ridge, there is and Moree, Mungandai. Um, there's language revival classes happening there to keep the language alive, so that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's three areas. So I neglected to mention that the book Sticks and Stones was also co-written by a non-Indigenous person by the name of Mr Tony Santa, who's an archaeologist. Okay. All right, so him and I worked together on that book there, and we put together lots of case studies of the projects that him and I have both worked on um, out in the field. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of history there, yeah. um, and you know, places that we've been to, travel together. Tony being the archaeologist and myself being the site officer, and how we we've, we've come across things and how you actually go about recording you know, items on country and things like that. So, yeah, so we're pretty proud of those three books. Um, they're available at, at any of our offices, mm-hmm. free of charge. Just and we into also the local land services office if you want to. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll do a plug for them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before I do that, each of those three books is also available on CD, so people can actually load the content into their computer all right. in a PDF format, yep. and they can cut and paste. I don't mind doing that because it's all for preservation. Great. Kids can use it for school assignments or researchers and scientists can use it for their own work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got various offices scattered throughout the area. Um, my office is located at Inverell, uh, 15 Vivian Street, and that's, I guess, deemed to be our main office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have an office at Armadar, where we are here today. We have an office at Glen Innes. We mm-hmm. have two offices at Glen Innes, one in uh, Greenaway Street on the corner of the Guida Highway, and also at the research station mm-hmm. at Glen Innes. And then we also have an office at Tenerfield. All right. Uh, apart from that, we've got vehicles galore, and I guess with mobile phones and tablets and everything else, we're all travelling offices. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but that, that's the main land-based offices, yeah. um, and people are quite welcome to pop in and have a chat. Right. Uh, and I'm quite happy if I'm in an area, if anybody wants me to pop in and see them or talk to a group, yeah. uh, give me a ring at our Inverell office, and I'm happy to make arrangements to come out and meet with people and to talk and... Uh, Spread the good word. I know there are lots of scientists that listen to this podcast that are probably interested in how they can better work with local communities and things. We've got a lot of knowledge um, and we don't mind imparting it. Mm -hmm. My attitude towards that and what I usually speak is if we've all got knowledge of some sort, if we all put it together and Mm -hmm. work work cohesively together and collaboratively, what a great place it would be. And that's what we're about. That's what we want to do. A lot of people get scared of Aboriginal people. And it's probably just through being ignorant. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very obliging. We want to learn off you guys, <laughs> and I'm sure you guys want to learn off us. Why don't uh, we just put all that together? Yeah, my, my, my question was, are there situations where your other sort of steps to build relationships have to happen first before the knowledge transfer mm. can happen? You've got to break down barriers. You've got to mm. break down myths. You yeah. know? Um, a, a good example of that is... Um, I can remember one particular chappy, he had a, a, a tree, and one of our trees that we fondly uh, look after is called a scarred tree. Mm-hmm. And a scarred tree is a tree that actually had the outer bark being cut off into a shape, mm-hmm. right? And that could be used for a coolerman as a pole, 
right, when the bark's yeah. taken off the tree, yeah. um, or a shield, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Right? And if they're really, really long ones, they're canoes. Okay. Right? Anyway, this particular farmer, he, he came and he didn't know what he had, but he wasn't going to knock the tree over because he wanted to do some ploughing in the paddock and he wanted that tree to go. All right. Um, but he had enough now to sort of say, oh, there's something about that tree. So we went out and we had a look at it and we clearly identified what it was. Mm-hmm. But not only did I have the farmer on the property, he also had his neighbours. Oh, great. All right. Yeah. And his family. Yeah. Right. And uh, so we explained to them exactly how that tree was used and all that sort of thing. So even to today, we went there and we installed a fence around that tree. <laughs> all right. Nice decorative fence. Yeah. All right. So he could still plough his paddock. Yeah. The tree's still there. Mm. The tree's there for everyone, our people. Yeah. And also for the farmer and his people. The reason I bought the other, the neighbours to come in is for they could learn as well. And they so can then tell that story to other people that come and visit yeah. them. And I mean, and one, one of the good things that I, I like about farmers is nobody knows their land better than a farmer. Yeah. They walk it, they talk it, they drive their tractors, their vehicles all over, they know every blade of grass and every rock <laughs> and every tree. And it's true. Mm. And quite often, even though when it comes to stone tools that are used by Aboriginal people in the old days, Farmer Brown will be walking through the paddock and he'll pick up something. He said, it doesn't belong here. Well, yeah. This rock doesn't belong. It's not the geology of this area. I don't know. <laughs> so how did it get there? Yeah. There's only one, one possible way it can get there, and that's if it's been carried there. Mm. So he invariably, when I go to properties, I usually look on the tank stand because mm. that's where he usually brings them back and puts them on the tank stand, right? <laughs> or on top of the fence post where the gate is. Yeah. On that particular paddock where he's found the rock. <laughs> so at least he's preserved it and held onto it. Yeah. Rather than run the plough through the paddock. Yeah. And then buried it. Mm. So there's a lesson to be learned out of all of that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so that's good. But a lot of people originally, when I first started, they used to think, "Oh, Aboriginal people are." Yeah, I'm too scared to mention I've got something on my property in case they all come out and they all have a big corroboree and all sit down under a tree and get a carton of beer and away they go. Right? That's a myth. Absolute yeah. myth. The other one is, hey, I'm too scared to mention something in case they come and take over my land. Oh, really? Yeah. And that one comes across. I get a hit with that one. Aboriginal people have no right under freehold land to take control. Take over land. Yeah, so there right. some sort all of native title to do claim that is they can to put preserve in. it. Yeah, that's all we want to do. We're not going to turn up there on the weekend with a flagon and sit <laughs> under the tree and and drink away silly. That that's all myth. That's all myth. That's people can in their head get out of it. Mm. We want to work with the farmer mm. or the landowner and jointly preserve things for his children as well as ours. Yeah, to me, that's a winning formula. One of the things you mentioned as being really important about your job is the fact that it's permanent and you can have long-term relationships. Yeah, the state government have realised the importance of our people working in these positions, mm. right, and to ensure that there's continuity behind those positions to ensure that the legislation is upheld but also to preserve what's out there. Mm. It's ultra-critical. I keep saying once it's gone, it's gone. I know I've said that already in today's interview, but it is true. Mm. Absolutely critically important that if we got to maintain things, rolling the clock back, if we'd have done this 100 years, 150 years ago, how much would be out there now? Mm. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is the impermanency of science and industry careers. Mm. 
And yeah, it's a huge impediment because if I'm sort of working in a particular area and I would love to involve or uh, get the advice of communities and that sort of thing, it feels a bit cheap because my contract might only be a year mm. and I'm never going to be able to build relationships. Yep. And it feels a bit cheap coming in and saying, all right, tell, give me all the information you have and then disappearing again. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Aboriginal people are people who take a long time to build up a trust mm-hmm. with people. All right. So if it's a familiar face that's coming doing a familiar business line, mm-hmm. if that's the right words, I don't want to lessen that by that by that terminology but by the person who's coming out there people get to know each other they know how to work together how they think mm. how they work and they have a, a base that they, that they can ring and they'll get an answer mm. they don't want to ring and no one picks up the phone all right so the trust factor is very very important having that familiar face there all the time or that familiar position when i move on and i retire someone will take over my job and do the same thing yeah and that's critically important. You cannot expect to engage Aboriginal people on a pro rata basis and not have that continuity. Mm. It just won't work. Yeah. It takes sometimes years to build up rapport. When we switched from CMA to LLS, we went into new areas, mm-hmm. particularly up in the Drake Tabulum area, which is Bunjalung country. I'd never been there before. Mm. I knew of them, of course, and they know all about our people. But I'd never worked with those people before. Mm-hmm. So I had to go up there and wave the flag. Mm. All right, Introduce myself. Tell them what we do yeah. and how we do it. That was when we became LLS back in 2012. Yep. No, 14, I beg your pardon, sorry. And we've now done probably seven or eight big projects up there. Mm-hmm. All right, The latest one was about three weeks ago, a huge cultural fire burn on their own land. Mm-hmm. That would not have taken place had we have not paved the way prior. Yeah, All sorts yeah. of meetings and discussions and smaller projects, building trust up between both groups. Mm-hmm. All right. So when we put on this fire burn, and it was huge. Yeah. Had nearly 200 people there. <laughs> All right. Um, and we had people come from all over New South Wales and Queensland to come to this fire burn on their land. So they were, yeah. they were stoked. Yeah. Right to see how an Aboriginal fire burn took place and all the methodology behind it. Mm. So this importance of having a continuity and a permanent role is is critical yeah. for the success. What's that? The flag waving procedure like reaching out to a community? Um, it depends on the community. Yeah. Um, you've got various types of communities with Aboriginal people. You have closed communities which is people who live on a mission-type situation. Mm-hmm. Not that missions are out there at the moment, yeah. but <laughs> in a, an environment where it's Aboriginal land and that's where Aboriginal people live. Yeah. Right? So it becomes very much a reclusive-type environment yeah. right? or a close-knit community. So if you're coming in from the outside, it's like trying to come inside a bubble. Yeah. All right? People are going to look at you with suspicion. They want to know all about you, what you're doing, and it might take five, six, seven, or eight, or ten visits mm. before the trust factor starts to come in. Mm. I'm prepared for that. Yeah. Might only take one visit, depending mm. on the community. All right? So if you can start re- releasing the benefits of what it is to get engaged with what we're doing and start to just gradually get people involved, not too big, not too quick. Right, there's a bit of a formula behind that. Yeah. You're not overpowering people. You're not 
system overloading them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so it's important that you just chip away at the mountain very slowly uh, and the results will come eventually and that's what happens. So, mm. Mm. It's important for people that do want to engage with the you know, people and communities around them that it's not a matter of you know, walking into a town and introducing yourself. There's a procedure you can follow. You can mm. go to the local land services or in, in the old land days, councils. Yeah, in, in the old days, James, we're in traditional law, we had a message stick. Mm. And what would happen is one tribe would be travelling through another tribe's country, right? And to do that, they would send a message stick, a runner or a mm. person, to carry this message stick to identify that there's another tribe coming through. Is, right. it, okay, is it okay to do so? Yeah. That was all about sustainability, yeah. all right? If there wasn't enough food sourcing to sustain the new tribe coming through, they'd tell them to keep on moving. <laughs> right? so, this is no different. Yeah. I mean, some people call it wave the white flag or whatever, but I go in there with an actual message stick and tell them who I am. Yeah. All right? I do it traditionally. Mm. All right? So they get the infusion of traditional knowledge, respect. When you go to into community, the first people that you should always engage is the elders. Mm. All right? The land council is important. Yes, you make all those arrangements. I'm coming up to speak with you people. Can you please ensure that the elders are present? Okay. I need to be there with them. Yeah. They need to hear what I'm saying because you may have a land council with all the legislation behind a land council, but actual, the elders are the ones who will actually dictate what's going on on that land. Okay. Mm. So it's important to get all the major players there in the room. Mm. Not to hoodwink anybody, but just to be open, honest, sincere. Yeah. And if they've got wishes or requirements, you adhere to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't want, if they say, don't go over to that hill over there, it's a women's site, you stay well away. Yeah. That sort of thing. And you wouldn't know that stuff. Well, you wouldn't know that if, unless you went there. Yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, because you're going into new areas. So, and the last thing you want to do is offend anybody, because mm. that could just be detrimental to the whole process. So, yeah. there's a little bit of protocol behind it, a little bit of knowledge that you need to know, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's probably also important to point out for people listening how variable is it across what we know as Australia are you know, in thousands of different countries, mm. each with their own yeah. uh, special languages and uh, traditions Australia's and areas very, of awareness, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, Australia's very complex. It's got roughly about 260 Aboriginal languages. Mm. So that's pretty unique on its own. <laughs> but basically Aboriginal people in the, in the good old days, the traditional days, they didn't need to go travelling around all over the countryside. Mm. I mean, they would look at an area, uh, if it's got food and water supply to sustain the tribe, yeah. and the tribe could be anywhere between 10 people to 100. Yeah. Right? That's good. They don't need to move anywhere. Yeah. Right? If they have to move around... That's when it gets a bit more complex because then you're increasing on another tribe's area. Yeah. So that's where the interrelationships are very, very important. So, mm. um, but that's sadly probably gone now, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But it's still good to talk about it. Yeah. Because it was a system that that worked. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. And it's not. It's when you think about it, it's not hard to comprehend either. Because even just with a modern example, you know, they're they're. Ways of doing things in Tamworth that are different to doing things in Armadale. <laughs> well, it's exactly the same thing. The same thing. And, and people are different too. Yeah. Each tribe would have the basic law, the LORE, but they would also perhaps in their own little area, because of circumstances around them, they would have their own law mm. on top of the law that's yeah. applicable to that particular area that they're living in. Yeah. And they might even come up with new words 
new language words, mm. uh, which sends they living in a semi-cocoon type environment. Mm. All right, and that's why in our language base we sometimes have four, five, six, seven words for the same thing. <laughs> right, even yeah. though it's all part of the one nation, the nation is made up of all sorts of little tribes. Yeah. All right, so each tribe might have a word like "bina" is their word for ear, right, mm. or "mill" for eye. Right, and there could be all sorts of spelling variations, which is mainly a, a, a hand down situation of how people interpret how things were said. Yeah. Right, but another tribe in an area 25 kilometres away may have another completely different word for the word I. Yeah. All right, and that's what they've been using. Mm. Put them together, and then you've got two, <laughs> and then three or four. <laughs> um, but we recorded all those. Great. So that's just pretty cool. So, yeah. you know, so no matter what area you come from in this area, we've I think we're pretty guaranteed we've got the word for it. <laughs> so yeah. good, good take-home message. Don't be intimidated by Aboriginal cultural people. No, <laughs> no, by all them. means. No, we're, we're very much user-friendly, I can assure you. <laughs> and, uh, no, very much so. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there still. Yeah. And we need our people to feel confident enough and competent enough to be able to relay that knowledge out there mm-hmm. um, the ecology of the land is very very important to us mm-hmm. I know how it sustains the animal life how it sustains the plant life uh, that's ultra ultra important every time we do a fibre and we engage ecologists to come out and actually look at the land and spend three or four weeks there if need be to actually do a complete flora and fauna audit on a property because yeah. right? it's important that we're not destroying the habitat both mm. for, for animals as well as plants. Um, if we go do a fire burn, we don't want to destroy their habitat. We want to maintain it. Mm. We want to improve it. And um, so we engage the scientific community in those areas there, mm-hmm. uh, get the experts to come out, and we work together with them. Mm. So that's pretty cool, you know. All right, well, I should probably let you get back to... I'll talk all day. All <laughs> I'm sure you would. That's <laughs> you, you can't do it all in five minutes. But, um, but look, I, I do thank yourself and, and you and me for the opportunity to talk. No worries. Um, and once again, I said I'm completely available to, to work with people, yep. to, to come and talk and to um, guest speak if need be. No um, um, welcome the opportunity, but I can always bring other players into the game as well. So, <laughs> well, I've, I've heard you do a public talk, and I can personally vouch for, for the quality of it. So. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> no, that's good. So, people, if they want to find out more about what you do, you can just look. We for... must do, we must do the language book one day. Oh yes, that would sure. be really good. That'd be every great to hear it spoken. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can bring speakers from this area here. This is Armadale area, yep. and this is Anawan country. Mm-hmm. So this is a nation of its own, the yep. Armadale area, Armadale, Urala, Kentucky, and their language base is Naganyawana. I don't speak Naganyawana because it's a completely different um, language structure. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go west into Camilleroy country, which is my country, my people, yep. all right, we have three distinct dialects, Camilleroy, Yawalaray, and Yawalayay. Once again, those tribes that were living close yeah. together with their little word base. Um, and then you go further south down to uh, Walker, you've got Thangadi, mm-hmm. right? They speak the Thangadi language down there. So I can bring all the speakers around, go to Glen, by, uh, Gaira, you've got the Bambai people. Yeah. Go to Glenlis, got Nagurubul, go to Ashford, we've got Quayambul. <laughs> uh, go up to Tenerife, we've got Gamilaray as well as Marble, and then we go to Drake and Tablin where we have the Bunjalong Lawalabal people. Yeah. I can bring any of those speakers along. 
Yeah. And it'd be great to hear all in the one room. It's, it's great to hear you just talk about mm. the people and languages because you can spend so much time in an area and all of that mm. really goes unseen mm. if or, unless you go searching for it, I guess. Mm. And initially when we started this conversation, I spoke about the Aboriginal Reference Advisory Group. Yeah. Um, and one of the big things that we do there is we, we hear what everyone is doing on their own land. We have our own meeting structure. We have a governance model, mm-hmm. all those sorts of things, and everyone's fine with that. Yeah. But we also bring in a language segment. And the actual agenda is actually written in language. All the headings are in the language uh, names, yeah. just to keep the language alive. And yeah. everyone understands the importance of doing so. And uh, we have the welcome to country, um, and we uh, we move our meetings around the whole area. Mm. So whatever area is the host, they do the welcome to country in language. Yeah. And then the other people who speak the language in their own native tongue, right, do an acknowledgement in their own language as well. Mm. It just keeps it all going. It's beautiful, beautiful it's to hear. It's something you see like, when you go over to New Zealand and yeah. all the street signs are in Maori as well mm. as English. Yeah, um, we haven't, is just having haven't that quite exposure. got that far yet. But, yeah, and but it's, it's the same, same deal. Yeah. yeah, It's putting it out there. It's keeping it alive. And even if it is different in every town you go to, great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Embrace that diversity. Well, up, up in Cairns there one time, they actually had some of the street signs in Japanese. Yeah, because right, of, because of the tourists, they yeah. had the English name, of course, and then in Japanese <laughs> writing. Because of the influx of Japanese tourists back in the eighties, yeah, and the eighties and early nineties, there was just a huge Japanese boom. Yeah, and they actually the council up there put them in Japanese writing as well. There's so many of these. So it seems like such a simple thing to do that would make such a huge difference. Yeah, it does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, we're, we're very proud of our of our culture and as I said please don't be scared of us please don't <laughs> that's right I don't think you're not that we, scared we've got Harry. good bragging <laughs> rights I think so <laughs> alright well thanks so much for sitting and chatting with no, me thank you James and, and, and the audience as well for listening alright thank you guys for listening it's been great if you want to hear more check out institutescience.com or at institutescience on social media make sure to subscribe leave us a review And we'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.